from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just read to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your glamorous, sometimes wannabe host, David Strausser, and this is your place to grow a business during complete global chaos. Getting in the holiday spirit here, wearing my uh, ugly Christmas sweater. Uh, you know, Philadelphia Eagles got glow up lights, all that fun stuff. Probably should turn the lights on, right? That, there you go. There we go. All lit up now. But anyways, today we'll be talking about international business culture. First, though, remember, please download the Shark Bite Biz app right on the Android Google Play Store. Just uh, search Shark Bite Biz. It's three words. You'll see our logo. You can get every single episode of the show there, both audio, video format, snippets. Everything is right there in the app. So please make sure you go out there, give it a five-star review, and download it today. Let's get back to today's show. The pandemic really pushes off the digital transformation cliff. I mean, we've beat that horse a million times. We've talked about that so many times in this show, and we've kind of gotten past that because everybody knows that by now. But one aspect of that is that we're working more globally than ever. Your coworkers may be halfway around the world. And with the beauty of this little thingamajig called the internet, your clients are probably, you know, halfway around the world as well. So we're going to be chatting about the differences in business, culturally speaking, between working in different countries, if you're an American working in Asia, things like that, and those different experiences and some, you know, tips to really help you succeed. So, who do we have today? And I am going to apologize right out of the gate because I'm probably going to chop this name up pretty bad. But we have Levant Yildizgoren, okay? And uh, Levant Yildizgoren was born in Turkey, but has spent the last quarter of a century running a highly successful professional localization service based in the UK. His decades of learning about the pitfalls and prizes the export market presents are shared in his book through his lingo model. He has helped companies do business in more than a hundred different languages. So, hey, without any further delay or having to stare at this awesome, beautiful, ugly Christmas sweatshirt, let's bring Levant right on in here. Business strategy. Levant. Welcome to Shark Bite Biz. You, my friend, you just became Shark Bait. Great to be here, David. Thank you for inviting me. No, no problem. So we always have a tradition on the show. We ask everybody the same exact question right out of the gate. Okay. I want to hear in your own words. And I know that sometimes this is hard to answer. It's like a can of worms for more people, for many people, but... You know, what's your experience? What's your background? What do you do for a living? How did you get there? In a nutshell, tell us what makes Levant, Levant. Okay, no, thanks. Thanks thanks for asking that question, David. Now, um, when, it, when I think about it, to summarize, um, what I do is I enable businesses to connect with their international audiences. because. We all know how important is selling to other countries. Large brands do it because they, they are large and that's how they become global. Apple gets 58% of their revenue from outside the, UK, uh, outside the USA. 
Sorry, I said UK almost because you know, as you know, I'm 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 from I'm based in the UK. What part of the UK are you from? Ah, good question. Well, we are in Essex, so it's not far from London, almost like a suburb of London. So, in other words, I could go to central London in like 30 minutes by train quicker than most Londoners do because it's probably <laughs> taking an hour to, to get to the center of London. You know, so it's, it's not. Suburbs of suburbs of London, uh, suburbs of London. Yeah. Now, my background is very much um, based on on that languages, translations, making my customers' messages count. I have been uh, running a translation company with my wife for the last thirty years. This is our thirtieth year, as it happens. And previously, I was in print. And you might say, well, print translations. I didn't realize the correlation until recently. I loved print. Well, print is also communication in a different, different medium, different media. Um, but yeah, I love print, and and of course I like, but I I love what I do because I've been doing it for the last thirty years. Life is too short to do something that you don't enjoy or you don't like. And uh, so that's, that's my motto. With the print, like you're talking about printed items, right? Yes, yes, very much. And one thing I've noticed, and you know, I'm bilingual and you know, it's funny, most of my life I would have just say, yeah, you know, I'm bilingual, but it's because I lived in Mexico or I lived in um, uh, San Diego or LA. And when you just say you're bilingual out there, people are like bilingual. Oh, okay. So you speak Spanish and English, you know, that's what bilingual means. And now that I'm on the East coast living out of Philadelphia, when people ask you, you know, like, Oh, do you speak more languages? And I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm bilingual. Um, and they're like, okay, bilingual in what? Good question. <laughs> you're right. Right. I had to start explaining to people what I'm bilingual in. But my point about this is <clears throat> One thing that I noticed, okay, there may be a Spanish book that is translated into English, or maybe it's an English book that's translated into Spanish, and they do literal translations, okay? They don't do the context of the translation because, as you know, in English, we'll use English as the, uh, the main example because both you and I speak English. You can say a phrase, okay? Um, like think what the, what the F, okay. I'm not going to say the word, but what the F WTF. Okay. Depending the context in which you say that, that can mean 30 different things. You know what I mean? And, and that's where they don't translate things a lot, of, a, a lot properly. One of the things I discovered on my language journey is that there's a lot of people that speak English speak Spanish, Chinese, whatever it may be, okay? But yes, they, they are technically fluent. They know every word in the alphabet, but they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. They don't have a true comprehension of the street-level language. And to me, that's a, that's a challenge, um, which is ironic because I learned Spanish living in the streets of Mexico in a, a poor Tijuana ghetto. So I learned the most basic versions of Spanish and was able to build on top of that to have more proper Spanish today. Whereas usually, you know, most people, they learn in reverse. They learn the, the formal version of the language 
And then they get, you know, dumbed down, I guess you could to the street talk later on. Well, yours has probably made it easier for you because by by learning the language, colloquial language, where you communicate with the locals, live the life, order your food and ask for directions and interact with the uh, local population, it makes you interested in the language. This is one of the things that we find that people don't see much necessity to learn another language. And whereas you started it from the ground level up and, um, but, and you can always polish your grammar. You can always learn the, uh, the, the intrigues of, uh, uh, you know, you can always increase your vocabulary, but the way you started, I think is the, is the ideal way to go. Because you're connected to that audience, connected to the language. I was immersed in a place where, uh, see, T- okay, so I lived in Tijuana, and in Tijuana, um, not to get into geopolitical politics in the United States, Mexico, but that's one of the big hubs where they deport people to. So they could be a lot of people that that cross the border without documents, or they're living up here on expired documents. Okay, Um, when they get deported, a lot of times they'll get deported through Tijuana and that gives Tijuana a very, very high percentage of people that speak English or understand English a little bit more. But I was living in one of the, the, you know, neighborhoods that were so rough that, um, you know, there wasn't even many of those people living in that community. So like, I really, yeah, like they knew a couple words here or there from TV, uh, but I pretty much had to learn the, the language, uh, because I was engulfed into it. It was, uh, an amazing experience. It was very difficult. Uh, a lot of times, um, you know, I remember, um, with my ex-wife, you know, for example, she was sending me to the store once to buy tortillas. Um, and down there they buy, you know, the sale of tortillas freshly made at the tortilleria. Every neighborhood has their own tortilla making place. And at that time it was like three, four pesos, uh, for a kilo of tortillas. And at this point, my Spanish was getting a little bit better. So I go to the store and I, you know, she was saying three or four, I thought she meant three or four kilos. So I bought three kilos and they were like, you know, I, I think they were, I, let's just say they were three pesos each. So they were like nine pesos. I'm like only nine pesos. That's like a dollar. Okay. Cause it was nine pesos to a dollar back then. I'm like, give me four. So I will get four. And so I bought another one and, you know, ended up with, you know, a thing like this, uh, freshly made tortillas. I come back to the house and they're like, what the heck did you do? We told you to buy one and it would be three or four pesos, not buy three or four. So it, it you know, it, it was one of those things where I spoke language, but I didn't comprehend the language. Um, you know, I, it, I don't know. It's just a funny story. I look back to when I was growing up. So I was in print uh, for like 10, 15 years and then moved on to the, we, we had an opportunity to, uh, to, to develop the business that my wife already started. Um, and she had a boutique translation company, and then we had an opportunity to 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 grow the company. So without any hesitation, um, I signed, you know, gave in my notice, resigned my position, and then joined her. 
So that was 30 years ago. You joined your wife's company. Were you nervous at all? Well, at the time, we were more excited because we were taking a major step. And uh, I mean, I always wanted to run my own company, be involved in my own future. And my wife really knew that and and appreciated that. So, I mean, I was the main breadwinner. Um, So when I resigned and joined the company, so that was a, a major decision. And thinking about it now, we didn't run any Excel sheets. We didn't run any risk analysis. We, you know, it was like a gut feeling. And thinking about it, oh my God, what have we done? You know, because we had two small children. We moved, we moved to the uh, Essex area then. And there was a recession in the UK. So, <laughs> so you know, would I do the same thing now? Probably not, but it was a it was the a gut feeling decision, and it worked really well. Hey, you know, sometimes the gut feelings like they can be totally wrong, but if you have a strong gut feeling that something's telling you that it is right, I'm a strong believer. Don't fight those strong gut feelings because sometimes, you know, the magic of this world, whether it's just faith, faith, whatever you want to chalk it up to, something's pulling you in that direction. Go ahead and do it. Now, you know, if it's for a lottery ticket, fight it off. That's probably addiction. But uh, if it's something like that with business, it's probably good. My concern would be you went into this business and you're working with your wife. So that means that you have no separation, uh, you know, from your spouse at all. You're you're living with her, you're working with her. So work problems become home problems, hope problems become work problems. How difficult was that for you? I mean, what were you nervous about that aspect of it? Because we haven't done it before. We we didn't know what was around the corner. So we had we had no idea. We had we had no expectations in that sense. But what we our biggest um, a challenge and our biggest target was to make it work because we had two small children, you know, house mortgage to pay. And as I said, you know, there was like recession at the time. And also we didn't want to, I mean, we said, you know, what could happen in the worst case? Say it didn't work. And I said, look, you know, at the time we were still young. I said, well, what can happen? I can go back to my work or find another job. So we are still young enough to do something about it. But to be honest, we didn't know what was expecting us. Now you have a very good, very good point. Now um, working and and living in the same place, working long long hours because when we start the business, you know the hours are never regular. And if anybody is thinking about you know starting a business for regular hours, <laughs> yes. So so you work almost, and we had a large project, so that means. I mean, uh, we often talk about this with my wife. We would work till small hours in the morning. And then because we would have to do the school run, we wouldn't go back upstairs to sleep. We would sleep down on the sofa, leave the window open so that we would have some fresh air to wake us up. So that's gone on like five, six months, just so that we could finish the project and also, you know, get, make things work. And gradually, as we felt as we felt was the word like secure and realized that actually this is working. And then, then we started taking uh, precautions such as um, one of us will do the school run. 
But we, we did, yes, yeah. But not we, we worked in the same office, but we moved from home to, um, to a separate office. And, um, and so, yeah, so we started taking time off, spending more time with children. But the initial years were not easy. I mean, how, how, how does that work? Okay, so, um, I mean, I guess you could say technically it's, it, it, you know, both you and your wife's company, but your, your wife started it. I mean, when you start talking about, let's just say a few years down the road, okay, after you were in five, six, seven years, you have some employees now, I imagine, right? Um, So how does that work as far as, like, you want to go on vacation, okay? You and your wife run the the business, you know, you, you two are the owners of the business, and... You know, it's usually like, hey, if I'm going out on vacation, my boss is there to back up my team in case they would need him, okay, Um, and make those executive decisions for me, okay? With you both being out, I mean, I assume you took vacations at the same time. I mean, how did you work around those types of things, you know? Because I I think that's something that people struggle with. No, that's a very good question. Now, we, from... Like not, I won't say day one because, you know, um, we, from day one, we, we wanted to make it work. So we were working so hard, but after like six months or maybe a year, we started building a team because neither of us wanted to do all the work ourselves. We wanted to grow the company, build a team around us that we could, um, we could rely on. And also we could help them develop as well. So that, so that, you know, there's a team in place and we, we always wanted that. And, and I'm pleased to say that we put in place a team from almost like from the first year. So whenever we left and we never wanted to micromanage. So we, we trusted our colleagues. We had, we, I, I, I'm pleased to say that we employed people. We found people, like-minded people so that we had the same, same core values. And with this in play, with this in mind, when we, went away for two weeks, we knew that company was in safe hands. And also we were approachable and we were also reachable. So that, you know, I mean, you, you know how it is. You never switch off that phone uh, because, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, at times when there was no mobile phones, we would give him like the telephone numbers of the place we are going, telephone numbers of the nearest relative. So also we would also do check-ins if, if there was a large project going on, we would do the check-in. But it's a very important question. And these are the times that, you know, I think most entrepreneurs will say, I'm glad I have a great team in place because I can take time off, attend, or it could be a time off, it could be attend a child, attend a relative in hospital or whatever that might may be. So having a team in place made all the difference. Right, right, right. Understood, understood. Um, so I guess let's take a pivot here. Let's start talking about some of the international business etiquette while, while we have you, um, you know, on this interview, because a lot of people they're listening in and they love hearing about your business, but they'd also love to learn some of the stuff that, you know, uh, all your, all your secrets, right? So what are some of the top three cultural misunderstandings that people need to avoid 
when doing business internationally? It's a good, very good question. And an international aspect is something that is, our, is in our daily lives. So it's not like nobody can, unless they, they live in a very remote area of a country, they are, you know, they are part of an international um, trade or international relations. You know, the phone we use, the, you know, the, the fridge we have in the home, the car we drive or the parts of the car we drive comes from. So the international aspect is part of our lives. So one thing that I come across, the biggest mistake, or I wouldn't say mistake because people do it unintentionally. Uh, the, the biggest um, awareness that people need to develop is that every culture is different and there's no right or wrong when it comes to cultures. And um, so that's, that is the biggest, um, you know, I hear from people saying that I went to this country, they are so rude. Okay, tell me, tell me a bit more, you know, what do you mean by rude? Well, you know what, you go to a, a coffee shop or a bar and they say, what do you want? That's so rude, you know? Okay, it's not what we are used to maybe in, in, in the UK or in the USA, you know, the service and the people who serve you will have, you know, act within that uh, cultural frame and cultural understanding. But in another country, when people say to you, what do you want? They're not being rude to you. This is just simply an etiquette that, okay, I want to ask you, what is it that you want? Now, there are many ways of saying this. So assuming that what you'll receive or the, 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 you know, the attitudes or, or behavior is going to be the same as your home country. I think that is the biggest um, awareness that people have to develop. And the other thing is, um, this is always the, the case with business people because they go to another country, you know, for a short period of time to develop relations or sell something or do a market research. And in, again, the cultural aspect of it, politics. In some countries, politics are spoken very uh, openly. In some countries, don't. You know, people, some countries, people say, which party did you vote for? That can be a, just a normal question. But in some countries, this is a taboo. Nobody asks they, themselves, each other, which party they are voting for. And also some countries, politics can be very point of um, passion. So people can be very passionate about politics. So avoiding talking about politics, football, and lastly, religion is so important because, you know, again, it's all about cultural values, the thought process, and depending on the country, those three things can be at the top of the agenda, or it could be at the bottom of the agenda. Talking about football is probably don't mean anything, but in some countries, people are so passionate saying something wrong for the football team. <laughs> you know, I know brothers kind of falling out because of they support different teams. So these are the things, I mean, you may say, David, okay, how will you know every single culture that you're getting um, interaction with? My suggestion is that, you know, based on working with different cultures for the last 30 years is the, is having a 
tolerance built so that having a body language that that is open and also pays attention to the other party. For instance, um, uh, in some cultures, age is very important. So when a delegation walk into a room, chances are, if it's a high context culture, chances are the eldest person walking in first will be the top top person in the room, you know? And they'll never leave last. They'll always leave the room first. And nobody in the lower hierarchy will dare to leave the room before they leave. So, so reading those body languages and not assuming that, uh, for instance, if you and I sit down and talking and I just do my button and, you know, let's talk business now. You know, now this could be perfectly normal to you because, you know, USA is a, uh, when it comes to direct communication, USA, UK is very similar, very casual. And you say, hey, David. Yeah. But in some cultures, doing this before a meeting could come as, as a sign of aggression. You know, so this is, so what is going on? You know, are, are you here to fight or, you, you know, so, so reading the body language, reading the room, and also not assuming that what is funny for me, what is acceptable for me, will be also acceptable for the other party. So really come, coming down to the basics, it is very simple. Awareness can be built, things you can spot it, as long as person is willing to um, take those signals, understand the, uh, the, the, the other party's reactions. And if they're not laughing, well, maybe, maybe I didn't say something funny. <laughs> so avoiding humor is very important. So, you know, just to summarize, cultural awareness, and before you know the other party, avoiding uh, hot topics such as religion, politics, football is also very important. Right, right. No, totally agree. I mean, some of the things that I've learned, for example, when doing business in Mexico or Latin America, um, America, we like instant gratification. We like doing things fast. You know, let's, okay, let's get to the punchline. Let's work out a deal. Let's close a deal. And yeah, sometimes it takes a long time to close a deal. I mean, look, uh, Elon Twitter, Elon Musk and Twitter, that took a long time for that deal to close because it was very large and complex. But for the most part, um, you know, deals or buying things, uh, selling things, it's usually a pretty fast uh, sales cycle. Down in Latin America, I discovered that uh, you know selling like that is a big turnoff. It makes it look it looks like uh, you're desperate for sales, and it, it's not you know you're not going to be successful selling that way. That it's a much larger, much longer sales cycle. Now, when I was working with uh, Asian companies doing semiconductor sales, um, you know, one of the things I noticed, noticed about those companies is that they're very hierarchical, you know, like a hierarchy, kind of like what you were saying about the age group to where everything's got to run its way up the chain before it runs its way back down to the chain and you have your approval. Um, you know, it, it it's very very crazy. I think some of those, um, uh, differences, you know, it always hates, I always hate to see when you have, uh, 
you know, an American. And uh, for, I mean, you could have this from any country. I'm just using America as an example because, uh, you know, I live here. But like, and they expect it to be the the same way in, you know, the the country that they're visiting as it is in the U.S. And I think a lot of people do that here too. You know, they're coming from a different country and, you know, they, they want it to be the, the same way as their home country as they do when they visit the U.S. I mean, it's like, come on. I mean, you can have some middle ground if you're doing business, but I mean, when you're visiting another another country, I mean, you're, you're pretty much, you, you're agreeing to play by their rules. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess one of the the last topics as we are coming up 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 on our uh, time, the end of the show, is uh, how to build trust with different cultures. I think that's an important topic, and I'd really love to hear um, how you build trust. You know, you're working with a company with Mexico in Mexico, or maybe you're working with a Korean company or a Turkey company, Turkish company, um, how can you build trust with those companies being a foreigner to them? That was always one of my biggest struggles when I was young. Very good, very good question because we buy on emotions and, and, and people need to connect with a brand or product emotionally before they actually make that purchase. Apple does it so well. Airbnb does it so well. You know, most of the global brands, Uber does it so well. You know, most of the global brands do it so well. And when you look at their behavior, you know, why they are so successful and others are not, is the, comes the, the I think it's very simple actually, but it comes down to what, what we call localization. What we mean by localization is that getting their message, language, cultural aspects catered for that country. So for instance, if you're using Airbnb in South Korea, you feel that it's a South Korean company. You wouldn't think that, well, this is an American company trying to do business in South Korea. Why? Because they make all the, I mean, keeping the corporate style consistent because Airbnb can't appear different in every country. So they keep the, uh, the, the corporate style consistent, but all messages, language is used that will reflect the cultural expectations of the target audience. That's why if somebody in South Korea, somebody in Turkey, somebody in Germany uses Airbnb as comfortable as anyone in the States. And the biggest success of these global brands is in making things uh, localized for the target country. For instance, Kentucky Fried Chicken, now it's known as KFC. They sell uh, afternoon tea, which is a, a scone with, with a cream and a jam in, in China. They sell afternoon tea in China, in Shanghai. Whereas in, in the UK, it's, it's unheard of. You know, they sell one thing, that's the uh, chicken and uh, other, other stuff. So localizing things for the target audience. And when somebody gets a message in their own language, they are more likely to understand it, get it, and get connected. Not just understanding, because 
oh come on, everybody almost, you know, big, biggest part of the uh, internet population speaks English. But getting a message is different than just speaking the language. People get the message in their native language four times easier and it helps them to connect with that product. And that, that kind of goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier, where understanding and comprehending the language are two different things. I, I feel like there's some overlap with what you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is their success. And, um, and companies who goes, who goes like, well, it's good enough for my uh, customers in my home country, it'll be good enough for anyone. So that kind of approach, uh, doesn't doesn't work, and um, it may work, but they are missing a big uh, opportunity by not localizing um, products and messages, and trying to reach customers in their native language. They are missing a big big opportunity by not doing this. No, totally, totally agree with you, Levant. Hey, this has been amazing. You gave us. A lot of good information. I hope everybody out there loved. It's been total pleasure. Can you please, you've got a book out there. You have a podcast out there. Tell us about your podcast. Tell us about your book. Tell us where we can find out more about your business as well. Thank you. Thank you, David. Well, my podcast is called Thriving Global Markets. And it's available in the most most um, most platforms such as your, 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 your podcast. Uh, it's available in Apple Podcasts, Google, and, and Spotify. So if anyone searches for thriving global markets, they'll find it. The book is, um, I love my book because I've been trying to write this for since 2018. So pandemic, the, the, the COVID, COVID kind of um, and provide me the platform to do that. I said, I'm not going to let this COVID, you know, run me down. I said, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before. And I said, okay, book, book is, and having a good team in place also paid dividends for me because my colleagues stepped up while I stepped back to write my book. Now, we'll, I'll provide you the link because I'm very pleased to say that I can offer a, a free download copy for your listeners and we'll provide a link for them to click and, and download it. Or alternatively, they can buy an Amazon, they can buy it from Amazon or 99 cent or 99 pence, uh, the e uh, the ebook e version. Also, is there's a paperback available. So these are the, um, the two two things that I'd love to offer to your listeners. And my company is is called TTCV Translate. And again, uh, TTC is Tango Tango Charlie Translate.com. And anyone searches in Google, they find us. And we'll be on the speak. We'll be on the place to speak with them. It's not, it's, it's not about transactional. We are not transactional. We love sharing information. We love supporting businesses. So anybody has any question about international culture, international business, they're welcome to connect with me. That is awesome. And as everybody knows, we'll have all the links below down in the description. Levant, hey, thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. You're a rock star, my friend. And looking you, forward to speaking with you soon. Absolutely, David. It's been a total pleasure.
Awesome. Thank you. Cheers. Wow. That was such an incredible interview with Levant. Because of the fact that I've lived in multiple countries, have worked for some Asian companies. I mean, it's just one of those interviews that really connects to me at a personal level. And I find intriguing because I have some experience that really kind of talks about what his expertise is. I have some firsthand knowledge. And, you know, in this type of world, it's kind of really given me, you know, uh, a chance to be a Ahead of the curve, I guess we can say. First, though, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, please do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out, because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret in the world of small business. Please share this episode out to your friends, your colleagues, you know, your coworkers, your family, whoever, wherever you dwell on the interwebs, whether it is Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Minds, Rumble, whatever it is, go out there, check us out, like, subscribe to the channel, uh, or give us a super thanks. You can give us a super thanks right there on the video. It's the heart with a dollar sign. You know, any type of donation helps us do the magic now that we're doing. Now let's go back to our rock star guest, Mr. Levant. It's the holiday season for most people, so I'm going to keep this short, okay? You've got to realize that people don't operate or make business decisions the same way as we do in the States. In the good old U.S., oftentimes we make a decision swiftly, and by swiftly, that still could be a few weeks or even sometimes a few months. But in other cultures or foreign companies, sometimes that decision takes three times longer because of the centralization or the hierarchy or the bureaucracy that's kind of built into their business processes because of their business cultures. I mean, Americans especially, I mean, we are more emotional based in our decisions. Like, yes, I want that by now. Okay. A lot of other cultures aren't like that. And that's where an American trying to sell in a place like Mexico, it is hard, you know, because it is a longer sales cycle. You're not going to get those quick sales as often. So, you know, you really got to learn and understand the people, the culture, the country, you know, the, the business processes of buying of the people that you're trying to market or sell to. So anyways, awesome stuff, Levant. Thank you for coming on to the show and sharing your incredible knowledge. Also, thank you so much for sending me a copy of your book, Good Business in Any Language. If you're working with people out of your uh, your home country, please, I highly recommend you grab a copy of this book. Check it out. It's amazing. The link for the book on Amazon will be in the description down below. Again, I took a, a brief uh, read through this and, um, you know, it's got all the main stuff that anybody working at some level of international, you know, some level internationally, you're going to want to know about. Question of the day. How much more post-pandemic are you working with people or companies abroad? Leave a comment down below on YouTube. Love to hear your discussions on that. Do you want to be on the show? If so, shoot an email out to interviews at sharkbitebiz.com. And remember, if you're watching on YouTube, you can join the channel. $3 a month, you can become a baby shark. You all know this by now, but I'll tell you once again. I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz. We'll see you all next episode. Ciao.
Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 